0: All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? And how do you get it? I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. Welcome to the show.
1: That power without love is reckless and abusive And that love without power is sentimental and anemic Because the so-called real world of men and money and power Comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline If people don't learn power, people don't wake up And if they don't wake up, they get left out all right.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Powerful, the live show. My name is Jeff Coulart, and I'm really excited to have you here with us tonight. And if you're tuning in live, I would love if you engaged with the show. And so if you're watching via Facebook or YouTube, you can always just drop a comment or a like on the show. And if you have a question for today's guests, by all means, put it into the chat and we will do our best to answer everybody's questions and engage with you. And if you're watching this after the fact via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, if you can drop a rate or a review. It's uh, super helpful, helps us reach a wider audience and have a bigger impact in the world. Uh, like I said, I'm really excited about today's show because it's in, someone I'm, I've admired for a very long time. She's an author, a speaker, an ice climber. Um, but more than that, she's an inspiration and she's an inspiration to me. And she's been an inspiration to a lot of the people that I know um, who have re- been fortunate enough to cross paths with her. And so without further ado, I'm really excited to bring you Margot Talbot. Mar- Margot, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here.
0: Awesome. So, you know, let's talk a little bit. Let's let's start with kind of who you are and what you do right now, and then we'll go from there. What uh, what do you do?
1: Yeah, what do I do? I do a lot of things. I am all the things you said in the beginning. I I write. I've written a book and I've written numerous articles. They either have to do with climbing or they have to do with the topics that I've lived through, addiction, depression, mental illness. And lots of times now, it's a combination of the both. Mm -hmm. And I do speaking. uh, Groups bring me in because they want to learn. It's either a group that's directly related to my topics, and they want to know how I brought myself out of suicidal depression, or it's people that go, hey, if those tools brought you out of suicidal depression, maybe they can bring me out of my everyday funk. And nowadays, I'm finding more and more groups and people want to know how what I've learned relates to COVID and how they can learn things to navigate COVID better.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd love to dig into that at some point tonight, or because I think that, you know, we talk a lot about trauma, like you and I have had conversations about trauma, and I know that's something that um you know, it's a very topical topic. You know, everybody's talking about trauma informed practice and what that looks like, and we're kind of collectively living through a bit of a trauma, right? It's maybe it's not capital T trauma in the ways that we normally think about trauma, but it's uncertainty, it's it's risk, it's it's a lack of safety, it's a lack of certainty. Um, there's lots of things that are you know traumatic about living through. Like I think life in general. like I, th- I think that we're we all live through a bit of trauma in our lives, and there's this collective nature of living through a pandemic and, you know, economic, you know, it's kind of not dissimilar maybe to living through war or living through other times where there's lots of uncertainty in life. And so I'd love to dig into that and to talk about that. But before we get there, why don't we back it up a little bit because there's pieces of your story that, we should talk about, you know, like, I think, you know, we can't just drop the, you know, suicidal depression, addiction, ice climbing combination, and not really dig into it. And, you know, I'm curious about that. And so can you give us a bit of the backstory um, to where you are now?
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of people, we just cope with life, and we think our life is normal. And it wasn't until my partner, Warren, would hear me tell stories about my youth, which went into my 20s and 30s. And, he encouraged me to write a book because it could potentially help people. And that had never occurred to me. I thought these topics were shameful. I thought um, they were things a person shouldn't talk about. You overcome addiction, mental illness. You should be you know, putting them behind you. And he encouraged me to write it. And the only way I could write my story was by telling myself that I was never going to publish it. Uh, nevertheless, of course, I did publish it, as we all know. And then my life changed. All of a sudden, I was freed up to talk about these topics. I was freed from the burden of my secrets. And so the snapshot is that I lived through childhood trauma. And uh, adult trauma affects humans adversely to quite a great extent. But when you're a child, your brain is actually forming while you're living through trauma. Now, uh, trauma is prolonged stress, or it can be heightened stress one-off events or it can be heightened stress and prolonged stress but in the case of childhood trauma it's prolonged stress no matter what and it could be interspersed with higher levels of stress with events that that happen so that led to me i was diagnosed with a mental illness at age 22 bipolar And that I was already self-medicating with street drugs and I stayed on the street drugs. I didn't go on pharmaceutical medications. I eventually got off the street drugs and I thought my life was going to be perfect because I gave up what was wrecking my life. And then I realized I had to go back and deal with all of the reasons that I had turned to drugs in the first place.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember Early on talking to you, or maybe you were talking to a group of our young people out of basic things, I think that's how we first met. I think you took some of our kids ice climbing in Canmore, And I remember a comment you made at some point around, you know, addiction street, like using drugs kept you alive through your suicidal depression. Right. And that really jived with my perspective on addiction being a solution often to something else, some underlying distress that you know, the temporary relief of that through addiction. And I've got a pretty broad lens on addiction. I think it encompasses a wide range of behaviors outside of what we would typically classify as, as addiction. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about the about that piece around the addiction and the depression?
1: Yeah, I always thought there was something wrong with me. First, because I was depressed, and then because I became a drug addict. And it wasn't until I had a, uh, one of the most important uh, people that ever helped me. It was a clinical social worker named Elaine Spencer. And I was in her office one day and I just still remember the day very clearly when I was telling her about my latest close call with killing myself, and she leaned over her desk and looked me straight in the eye and said, "Margot, it's the pain you want to end, not your life." And that was the moment I realized that my drug use had actually helped me ease the pain enough that it may in fact have kept me alive because we can't deal with these deep traumas until we're ready or until we have a support system. And we use coping mechanisms until that time. And my main coping mechanism was uh, street drugs, alcohol as well, but mostly the the street drugs. So I think that uh, my, one of the best messages that I tried to get across in my book was if you're suffering from suicidal depression, maybe look into it like a dark night of the soul kind of a thing, the, um, the Selva Oscura, if you will, of Dante's Inferno, where you go through it alone, but it doesn't mean that people can't help you with signposts and help you get an accurate compass and help you draw a map. Mm-hmm
0: let's talk about helping help helping professionals and the helping professions a little bit because i know that up until you met elaine and maybe like bookended around that that helper that you that you cross paths with i'm sure you had lots of run-ins with other helpers right other psychologists social workers psychiatrists police officers potentially like you had your you had your fill of the the helping services we'll call it um What's and and you talk to a lot of helping professionals now and you work with other helping professionals in what's a what's a piece of advice or what's a maybe let's say what's a common mistake that helpers make or the helping profession at large makes with people and what's an antidote to that or what's a what's a practice that you know for sure is is more helpful. Um, Yeah,
1: the number one thing is first engage with the person connect with the person you may find their behavior erratic you might not understand why they're doing what they're doing i.e why is she doing drugs why is she wrecking her brain and her life on drugs connect with the person and and work with everything from that place that's exactly what Elaine did Elaine connected with me as a human being she didn't judge me and whereas other mental health professionals wanted to medicate me immediately upon finding out I was suicidal. Elaine wanted to know why I was suicidal. And Elaine wanted me to know that I was trying to get away from my pain, not end my, end my life. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. It's actually like, there's a lot of good research out there that goes back decades now. It's called common factors research. And I've talked about it probably on the podcast before. So listeners have heard this from me or, you know, it's like, there's a set of factors that that psychologists if they have these relationship factors they they're just better therapists like when we look at what works in therapy what works in the helping professions it's non-judgment curiosity empathy positive regard right like the things that 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 are very much relational characteristics and have nothing to do with the disease at hand or the um yeah the 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 the, the the problem. Maybe that's what I'm what I'm getting at is that we misdiagnose the problem, right? It sounds to me like the problem for you was not suicidal depression. The problem for you was not addiction. There were deeper problems. There were underlying problems related to childhood trauma that were manifesting in these different ways, but we're so quick to grab onto the symptoms of a problem and then say, this is the thing we need to fix. And we direct all of our attention and our energy at that. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Like, Locating the problem seems to me like it's pretty fundamental for us to get right. Otherwise, we just keep missing the what's really going on for people.
1: Well, uh, not to say that all people who have interactions in this way have have had childhood trauma, but many of them do, and it's coming to light now. But if you think uh, you're a police officer and you're coming on a scene and you see an erratic acting person, or maybe it's a a known drug addict, uh, yes you're 100% right, seeing behind the symptoms. Because when we see children who are coming from harsh realities, our heart goes out to them. They're cute little kids, and we love them. We want to pick them up in our arms. But by the time those kids hit puberty, and I was one of them, it's no longer cute. There's anger, there's destruction, there's behaviors that we don't understand. There's, you know, swearing and kicking and biting. And, That's the thing that um, it's not that you condone the behavior or put yourself at risk, but seeing the behavior as a cry out for help and a symptom of something deeper going on. And sometimes the person themselves doesn't know. For instance, uh, when I moved to Canmore and got off street drugs, I literally thought my life was all just going to fall magically into place. I got rid of the big bad thing called drugs and life was just going uphill and I became more suicidally depressed than I'd ever been. And I just want to say uh, right away that I've developed this thing that I call the vitality spectrum that you've heard me talk about, Jeff. And basically, I now look at suicidal depression as when you have no life force left, you have no will to live. And then the opposite side of the spectrum is radical aliveness. And so I, I, I developed this tool later, but I looked back and thought, what I did was I started making decisions to put aliveness back into my body and aliveness back into my life and I it kept me moving that needle on my mental wellness and that's a lot of what I talk about now when I when I speak because you don't have to be suicidally depressed sometimes you just you wake up you're lacking energy where we're all somewhere on the spectrum and sometimes people get stuck somewhere and they don't always know why because there's not a lot of awareness in all parts of our society on why these things happen to people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. No, I love that. And let's, let's park that for a sec. Cause I want to dig into that, um, the vitality spectrum and some of the work that you're, you're doing now, but I'm curious about how ice climbing, where ice climbing intersects with this journey that you were on. So you moved to Canmore and you get exposed to ice climbing at some point. And can you describe that and how, how did that become an integral part of the, the healing journey for you?
1: Yeah. So I'm dating this guy and he's an ice climber, but he also does a lot of drugs and parties. And he took me out ice climbing. I was 28 years old. I was actually still living in Jasper. He took me out ice climbing. And as I climbed my first pitch of ice, it was the first time in my life that I ever felt free from the emotional burden that I always carried around with me without using a heavy dose of street drugs. Now, I didn't know happiness was possible for me. When I heard other people talking about happiness or, you know, laughing or giggling, I thought they're either faking it or it's just something that I can't feel. I have a different genetic makeup than them. But on that day, I felt free from the burden of pain that I always carried around with me. And I instinctively knew that I was going to be able to give up street drugs for climbing. I I didn't know how I was going to do it or how long it was going to take, but I, I instinctively knew that. And that's how I would, um, I define depression as being caught in the pain of the past. And my pain was so heavy that I didn't have, uh, I didn't have enough happiness in my life to make me want to live. But what I ended up doing after I learned how to ice climb is I did, I found out later it's called pendulating. It's where you find something that gives you joy and reprieve from the pain. And then you, you pendulum over and you look at the Pandora's box of emotions, the, the painful memories. And then when you can't handle looking at it anymore, you go back and you go climbing and you do something joyful. And that gives you the energy and the strength and you go back into the trauma and it's uh pendulation. And that's what I ended up doing. And, Before I knew it, my life, instead of being 98% pain and 2% happiness, I just kept moving that needle until where I'm at today where, yeah, I still deal with some triggers and I still have some moments where I'm, I'm, I don't have crushing depression, but where I'm bordering on that depression, but I have so many tools and I bring myself back to feeling joy and being excited about being alive.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. And I'm curious of your, your perspective on adventure sports in general and, and wilderness therapy, because it seems to me, you know, I, so I spent about a dozen years probably working with Enviros, working with kids um, out in the wilderness, wilderness therapy type programs. And I always saw the adventure experience as a bit of an accelerant in treatment right? It's not that maybe you could, people couldn't get there, but there's something about the, the the challenge and the, the risk and the aliveness maybe of it, the joy, the, the, the camaraderie, like the partnership, there's, there's a bunch of different elements of the adventure experience that really stand out to me as being integral pieces of like helping to accelerate that treatment journey. Can you talk a little bit about kind of, 'Cause So you had your own kind of healing journey and ice climbing was a big piece of that. And now you've moved into a place where you do a lot of coaching and you do a lot of mentorship and you do a lot of, you know, I met you, I think with a, uh, with a bunch of kids in tow doing ice climbing, um, as a, as a way to help the healing journey along for people. Can you talk a little bit about like lessons learned or things that you think about now that you're, you're a few years down the road from your own healing journey and you're helping other people through their healing journey? What are some of those ingredients that you see as being really effective?
1: Well, I can tell you uh, ice climbing for me made me feel powerful in my body in a way I'd never felt before. I climbed a frozen waterfall. I mean, how cool is that? Everybody doesn't have to go out and start climbing. It could be I biked a mountain trail. I did a loop on my cross-country skis that I never thought I could do. And the, the stronger I felt physically, the stronger I felt mentally. And I realized that I could use this strength that I was gaining because it's it's intertwined. When I climbed a waterfall, I felt mentally strong. I felt like I'd overcome fears. Uh, I'd overcome the cold. I'd overcome a whole bunch of things. But it, it, it was ice climbing. But I also lived in my truck on the Icefields Parkway for two years. It was the feeling of self-sufficiency, I can light a backcountry stove, I can take care of myself, mm-hmm. I can make a meal uh, on the back of, back of my truck on the tailgate in minus 20. I can uh, you know, make a fire, um, whether it's at a youth hostel or at one of the shelters that we used to stay at. That's why I think adventure is so powerful. It, it is the camaraderie, but it's the feeling of that you just accomplish something. And no one can take that away from you. You might still be an addict and you might not have fixed all your problems, but you accomplish something under your own power. And that's a very self-empowering thing. I also think in particular for traumatized people, we lose trust. And the first thing we lose trust in is uh, other people. Uh, We lose trust in ourselves. So adventure gives us trust back in ourselves. And nature is a very uh, healthy non-judgmental arena. It's it just is. And you you basically it's uh it's not disingenuous. A lot of what traumatized people grow up with is disingenuous human interactions. There's no disingenuousness with nature. It it just is what it is. And that's why I still recommend, even for people that want to move or they want to do some exercise to get their energy going, I always recommend go outside. The sunshine, the fresh air, the electromagnetism of the earth, there's nothing that replaces. I mean, I go to a gym, I go to indoor rock gyms, but I always make sure that I get a certain amount of my time outside I try, you know, on a daily basis. But I try to do stuff outside and go into the mountains and, and have all those things working on me at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do you,
0: I'm always curious when I'm talking with people who have uh, a, a history with addiction, um, do you consider yourself an addict still? Are you a recovering addict? Were you ever, like, how did you identify with it? There's always there's this a bit of a polarized camp, I find, with recovery. How do you view your, I guess, your history with, with addiction?
1: Well, this is might sound funny, but I have a very addictive personality, but I don't consider myself an addict. I won't touch street drugs ever again. And someone might say, well, you know, if you'll never touch alcohol, then you're an alcoholic. If you'll never touch street drugs, then you're a drug addict. I don't see myself as an addict because I don't need to self-medicate for the pain anymore. That changed everything. So I do know there's people that go to AA and I do know that they spend the rest of their lives saying, hello, I'm, I'm John Doe and I'm an alcoholic. And I respect that if, if that's the route that they've chosen and that that keeps them sober. But when I, once I worked through my emotional pain, which is what I was self-medicating with the drugs, I just simply didn't need the drugs. I simply don't need drugs. Drugs are a way of going unconscious and I do everything to become more and more conscious every day and more and more present. So when I get triggered, I get emotional stuff come up for me, I go another layer to look at instead of the old pattern 20 years, 25, 30 years ago, which was I need more street drugs. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. What are you becoming more conscious of lately? You know, what's a what's a new awareness for you? Um, Maybe pandemic related, maybe not pandemic related, but something an aha recently or something that you're like is now in your consciousness or inside of your awareness that is really interesting?
1: Well, I'll start off by telling you something that surprised me when COVID first hit, I thought that's it. I'm not going to be able to keep it together. This is everything. It's helplessness, hopelessness, unknown. And oddly enough, I have coped remarkably well with COVID. In fact, I would say that I've coped better than most of the people like, like siblings or friends and stuff that call me. I would say, I've coped remarkably well. And I didn't foresee that. And I th- I know we're going to get into more COVID-related stuff lately, but I believe it's because I know instability. I know the unknown. I know this is not the first time for me. I think that if I had grown up in a sheltered, maybe a sheltered life and hadn't experienced a lot of things and didn't have a lot of resilience, I think maybe COVID would have taken me out more. But I'm like, I've got this. And I also have a giant toolbox to draw on and rely on the same toolbox I used for my own personal childhood trauma. I'm finding I can use the same tools because basically what's the underpinning of trauma? It's stress. And when you called COVID, you know, maybe it's a small T trauma. I'm sure for a lot of people, it is a big T trauma. For some people, it's a small T trauma. Um, It's still a stress and everyone has a different breaking point under stress, whether they're in the military or whether, you know, something happened to them as an adult or they had childhood trauma. We all have different breaking points and it's really hard to compare because something that I might think is minimal could feel really huge to somebody else. So I think that answered the first part of your question. And then I think you said, uh, what has surprised? No, what's the other part of your question?
0: probably wasn't a very good question because I probably asked two or three simultaneously so what is maybe let's let's shift gears just a, a touch because that that's a great answer um, because I think it, it opens the door for us to talk about some of those tools right and and maybe some of those pieces that are are portable because one one thing that I realized in the working with kids in the wilderness is that it wasn't the most portable thing in the world, right? We were taking kids often from an urban environment who didn't have a lot of resources and we're taking them rock climbing. And if their sobriety then depended on their ability to access rock climbing, right? That was actually not a very portable skill. And so I'm curious about some of the tools that you've developed over, over the years that are portable, that anybody listening to this show can start to implement in their own life, whether it's, you know, outdoor adventure activity nature but i know that there's probably some pieces there's probably some other pieces in the toolkit and i'd love to hear what those are
1: i'm going to start with the physical uh eating good food drinking lots of fresh water when when our bodies don't feel good uh we can we can start to think that we don't feel good in our minds so uh you know trying to be away from toxins so the uh, taking really good care of our physical bodies and then taking really good care of ourselves emotionally. Something that took me decades to learn is that I never want to run from an emotion. And when we get an uncomfortable feeling, the first thing we want to do is is run away from it. Or, you know, I just have to get out of this place. I just have to go away from that person and this feeling will go away. I have learned that our feelings tell us more deeply who we are than any other part of us. So when I get a feeling uh, maybe it's a feeling of being out of control, a feeling of hopeless or helplessness. I go into it, and then I ask myself questions. Why are you feeling this way? Can you backtrack? When did it get triggered? What part of my body is it lodged in? I may lie down and meditate about it, but I I, I have found that when I try to run away from a feeling, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger like a boogeyman, and when I just turn around and face it, I can work my way through it, and that's one of the big reasons why I don't get depressed anymore. Okay. That,
0: I i'm sorry to interrupt you but is that the underpinning some of, of addiction like do we is it running from our feelings and trying to numb like not wanting to feel something it strikes me that a lot of addictive behaviors from shopaholism to workaholism to actually using substances to alleviate that is is running from our our emotions
1: yeah even a sport you can use climbing to go more deeply into yourself or you can use it to run away from adult responsibilities. So in that sense, anything could be an addiction, but absolutely we can't run, we can run from a lot of things, but we can't run from our internal state. And so the only thing left is to throw something into our internal state, i.e. a substance so that we can then escape from the feelings. So yes, definitely an underpinning uh, of addiction. The the next uh, part of what, so we've got the physical, and then we've got the emotional, and then I would also say it's really important who we hang around with. And this is, it's not a judgment, what I'm about to say. It doesn't mean that people are bad for you, or I hear a lot of people calling other people toxic. It can just mean that, especially when we're healing, the combination or somebody who triggers us, or let's just say when I had bad boundaries, in my 20s, hanging out with someone else who had bad boundaries was very toxic for me. I can be around people now who have bad boundaries, because I have good boundaries. So it wasn't that there's anything wrong with the person. And I'm gonna, we all know, we've all been around someone when we leave and we go, Oh, my God, I feel so drained. Well, once again, it's not a judgment. But if we feel drained, there's usually a reason. And, And, and I encourage people to probe into the reason, or if they're in a healing place in their life to just without judgment say you know what i don't think i can spend much time around that person right now maybe in the future but but not right now to honor those things and then uh, i think spiritual spiritually it's been very important to me that there, to know that there's a force or a power in the universe that's greater than me and i write about it in my book where i was just about to reach for the crack pipe again. And instead I looked up and saw the stars and the moon. I was living in my truck at the time, saw the stars and the moon and I felt this power. And that was the last time that I ever did cocaine. Hmm. I felt this power and I knew that there was something greater in the universe and I was never going to be able to tap into it or have a greater life. If I was addicted to these drugs
0: yeah, I mean, I think that those domains, so you've got the biological domain, you've got the emotional psychological domain, you've got the relational domain, which I think um, it's interesting, and then you've got the spiritual domain. So you've like that's a pretty holistic snapshot, I think, of where we can intervene with things like addiction and and mental health issues. But it seems to me that we've we focus very narrowly as a society on the the biological and sometimes the psychological, right? Like, it seems to me that a lot of research is going into how can we medicate our way out of these problems? How can we do, like find the, the magic drug that to solve addiction or to solve depression? Um, and we spend a lot of time running people through therapy, um, individual, usually, you know, go talk to a therapist or go talk to a counselor, and very little time is actually spent in those other two domains inside of looking at relationships and looking at kind of a spiritual connection to something, or, you know, I might call it meaning and, you know, sense of meaning and purpose and some of those other, those bigger pieces. So uh, I love that you're touching on all of those and I'd love to dig into them um, as we go, but maybe I'm curious to dig into emotional, the emotional piece, because you said something in there about um, like running from emotions and I've been thinking for a while and this is probably going to open up a can of worms. And so let's just see where this conversation goes from here, but it seems as a society, we're not tolerating emotions very well. We're trying to create a lot of safe spaces where people don't have to deal with emotions. We're trying to, I mean, a lot of our behaviors are around numbing emotions or not kind of dealing with them. Uh, But there's also this very like polarized, let's not have hard conversations. Let's not, speak the truth to each other. Let's not tolerate tough conversations. And I don't want to get this like from the like right into politics right away. But it seems to me that there's some pieces of this that are instructional. Like we can take some of what works at the individual level. Well we know is important to be well and to live a meaningful life. And we can take those out into the bigger kind of family units or into society at large and say, well if it works here, right? So I've always believed like if it works here at the individual level it should work at the community level and it strikes me that that not being able to talk about our emotions not being able to identify and have tough conversations is a is a piece that's missing in society so that, i don't know if there's a question there or if that's just a statement i don't know but you might have a response to that like how do we do this as people together
1: well what i think what you're saying in a nutshell is we don't like to look at the dark side of ourselves of humanity of 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 being a human being we love emotions when it's joy and fun and and relaxation we don't like pain or anger as good examples to start from so I find that as a society, we love to focus on the positive at the expense of the negative. And we all know that that's not a recipe for fixing our problems. If it was, the world would have no problems. At least at least North America would have no problems. So I couldn't move forward until I went back and looked at my dark side. And humanity is stuck in the same place right now. Humanity will not look at its dark side. The dark side of humanity, whether you call it greed, whether you call it violence, Power over others, power abuses, it all stems from the shadow side of humanity. And if, if humanity won't look at its shadow, we will never um, come into the light, is how I would describe that problem. So, yes, we are allowed to express a certain array of emotions uh, publicly that are, that are acceptable emotions. And I can tell you that for women, we're not allowed to express anger, and men are not allowed to express pain. And I believe that the reason male suicide rates are higher than women's suicidal rates is that women, by and large, are allowed to express their emotions and reach out for help and be vulnerable. And even though our society is changing and it's it has changed a lot, and there's a lot of lip service to it, I still know that a lot of men will not seek help, will not show weakness, and will and and have a hard time crying. They've been told since they were born, basically, or two years old or three, wherever it starts, they've basically been told that it's wrong and it's bad and you can't do it. And it's so deeply ingrained in them that when the time comes to reach out for help, and uh, I've told you the example before of the man I had a relationship with in my 20s who taught me to climb, we had a very dysfunctional relationship. By the time it ended, I knew I needed to get help. And I went and got help, and he didn't. And I am living the life I've lived today, and he lost his battle with darkness and has since ended his life.
0: Yeah, that's a it's a sobering statistic when you look at male suicide, and, and you know it's the leading cause of death for men my age. Um, I think after a certain, I don't know what the age range is, but you know, thirty to fifty or thirty to sixty or something like that, it's a huge chunk of the male journey is is plagued by you know suicide and if not suicide then things like addiction right and you know workaholism and all of the other ways in which men cope with that underlying pain that uh that we don't talk about um yeah interesting so what are you doing now when it comes to this vitality spectrum because i'm really fascinated by like or I think there's a lot of utility in this looking at everything as a spectrum. So I look at basically life is on a spectrum. I actually just got into it with Twitter the other day with somebody who was trying to make some strong claims about something being very like black and white. And I was like, yeah, it's not black and white. Life is on a spectrum. It's, it's all gray. Um, but what's some of the, I guess, what are some of the learnings that you've had around kind of vitality and, and aliveness? And what are some of the, I guess, it goes back a little bit to the toolkit. I'm curious around um, some of the other things that you do to keep yourself well in, especially in a pandemic. You know, have you, have you noticed yourself doing more of something? Have you been connecting with other people more? Has it been like the relational piece that you're doing more of? Are you doing more exercise? Are you doing more meditation? Are you, do you meditate? I, you didn't, I, I don't know if you even mentioned meditation. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who have kind of gone through addiction, meditations and mindfulness has actually been a core piece of that journey. Is that, uh, I see you nodding your head.
1: Yeah, uh it's very true for me and you know I I like to define things my own way because they make me do things more. So meditation for instance, I used to get really intimidated by the idea of meditating and now I just lie down, try to focus on something, maybe it's maybe okay, maybe I get angry and I try to where's the anger? Why am I angry? And sure, my mind wanders all the time. And I just I just I've learned to be really gentle on myself. They tell you that when you first start, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. But I've learned to be really gentle on myself and just go, that's just human beings. That's the what we, the way we are. Our minds just wander all the time. So yes, I do meditate. I find it very helpful. I w- actually went to a meditation school for two years in my late 30s, early 40s. And I meditated every day for years, plus went to school. It's It was called an energy meditation. So it wasn't empty your mind and think nothing. It was a specifically bring up stuff, specifically uh, bring up issues. But um, what are the things that I'm doing? I ramped up all of my self-care, for instance, during COVID, because I realized how easy it was going to be to not do enough exercise. I didn't have my rock gym anymore. I didn't have the weight gym anymore. And I had to find creative ways. I hung my tools over a two by four in the basement and and hung off my tools and moved my feet around and pretended I was ice climbing. I had one kettlebell in the house and I did, I I could probably write a book on kettlebell exercises. (laughs) Um, I went outside. I made sure I went outside every day and got daylight into my eyes. There's uh, after world war II, there were a bunch of blind soldiers in the UK hospital and they thought they were blind or sorry, there was a bunch of blind because they'd gotten shell-shocked. I forget the details. I'm not very scientific. But they all got depressed. And the hospital staff, the doctors, assumed that they were depressed because they had just gotten shelled and they had just gone blind. And six months later, they all came out of their depression. And what they realized in that, um, it wasn't a study on purpose, but what came out of it was that sunlight enters our eyes and puts energy into our body. We're kind of like batteries, these high-tech batteries. And because these, uh, when people go blind and they can't see anymore, the retina doesn't send light back into the brain. And so all of these, there's a lot of stuff that humans don't, I don't know that we don't know about it, but it doesn't necessarily get down into the everyday person's awareness. But I really treat my body like a battery, When we go to the ocean for a day, we feel really happy because we swam in the ocean and we lied in the sun. And I've actually read studies, scientific studies that say that we literally are like a battery. We require salt and water and uh, energy input in the form of the sun. And that that feeling isn't just because we had a fun day playing at the beach. It's actually physiological. Hmm. There's also studies. When I first I mean, I like to think that I accidentally stumbled upon adventure therapy, because there's studies now that show that exercise elevates the level of mood stabilizing chemicals in the brain. And that's precisely what traumatized people have low levels of. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really, I consider my levels to be quite normal now, but I know they can slip. And I know they can slip probably more easily than other people, because once again, my, my mind got formed in trauma. And so When COVID hit, I knew that it was really important to keep level of exercise up, um, eat better than ever, make sure I didn't drink too much, didn't have that extra glass of wine every night with dinner. Um, Like, you know, having one glass is fine or maybe a glass and a half, but just just being really careful that I wasn't slipping into any bad habits. The biggest thing I miss is connection and even with masks. I love looking at people's faces. I love seeing the facial expressions. I learned to read people's faces as a child. It's normal in households, traumatized households, because you want to get a temperature of what's going on specifically with your parents all the time. And so I've become very adept at reading human emotion. And I'm finding it quite hard. Hmm. I'm not finding it hard not to socialize. I'm finding it harder to go out in the world right now, and everybody's got a mask on, and I just see their eyes.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true it's been an interesting six months or so hasn't it when you know people are you know a little further apart on the trails or in the stores and now you know masks being common there is um less of that ability to connect right it's probably it's affecting our ability to to connect kind of person to person um which is we know is is so critical and so important for for us as humans we're a social a social animal for better or for worse um
1: Interesting. And we mirror each other. Like like I, I'll say something and I'll go, Oh, I think Jeff was offended by that. Oh, Jeff isn't laughing as much as he once was. Maybe the topic got too like we we mirror and we adjust with each other. It's a very healthy phenomenon. That's what traumatized children don't get. And so with the mask on, I'm really I'm starting to think a lot about children right now. I I'm an adult. I can handle it. It's not my favorite thing. But I'm I think about all those little children that are not, their brains are forming, they're one, they're two, they're three, they're going to kindergarten, and everybody's got a mask over their their face. I think about that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got a three, a six and a nine year old. And the three year old is very, you know, the last six months, like a six months is a long time. When you're three years old, that's a big chunk of your lifespan. And His world has been dominated by COVID, and he talks about COVID. He talks about hand sanitizer, calls it hand sani. He needs to put his hand sanity on, and I'm like, what three year old knows like (laughs) that? He needs to put his mask on and wears like get his hand sanitizer. It's a different, uh, a different experience for sure. All right, I want to talk a little bit about society more broadly, and so we've kind of we've talked about the kind of at the individual level. There's some very you know, concrete things that we can do to increase our wellness, to increase our own level of resiliency in the face of stress. And, you know, we, you talked about the biological, the emotional, or the psychological, the relational, and the, the spiritual. And we could dig into each of those topics, I'm sure, more deeply. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about at the community level or more of the system level, what are the, some of the things that we should be thinking about and doing as communities and as society to a like better deal with trauma, because right? we know we know what's happening, right? So how could we intervene with trauma, or and how can we foster resiliency? I mean, it's kind of the two sides of the same coin, I think, in a lot of ways. What are your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, well, there's always things we can do, but the time to work on trauma was when we had a lot of, um, when there was a lot of resources around, a lot of money. A lot. What what I'm watching right now, one of the most devastating effects of the pandemic is actually the economic fallout. So we're we're watching small towns in Alberta talk about whether or not they're going to be viable into the future. Do they have to shut down? They don't have enough money for infrastructure. Uh, Maybe it was mismanaged. Maybe there's just not enough people living in the town. Young people moved away. We're seeing people in Calgary losing their jobs. Well, other places too. I'm just trying to stick a bit closer to home because it's what I know better and read articles about the economic fallout is causing easily more stress than the actual pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so that's worrisome. So we didn't go into the pandemic very strong, in my opinion. And what I mean by that is when you have a boom, like we've had in Alberta or Canada, first world countries for the past, you could say since World War II, with a few blips on the radar, Um, or let's say after the great depression would only be fair to go after the great depression. That's after world war II, I think. So we've been, we've been through the biggest boom. And that's when you want to top up your coffers. You want to top up your mental health coffers. You want to top up the, um, you know, soup line coffers. You just want EI to be topped up welfare to be topped up. And I feel like the system was maxed out before we even hit the pandemic I feel like debt levels, governmental debt levels, personal debt levels. Like I just feel like we went in weak, and it's not a judgment. It's just, uh, had we known, we probably would have wanted to go in more resilient. I look at resiliency like a bank account, like something that you you want to have a lot of it in your bank account. Um, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, Carolyn Mace, says, "When you get sick, you don't you don't want to have to perform Olympic caliber health." routines when you get sick you want to have banked a bunch of health so that if you get something when you're 30s or your 40s you've got a whole bunch of health resilience to draw on so my question for for people in the audience tonight would be how resilient was i going into the pandemic and if I wasn't resilient, what are the way, what are the ways I would like to become more resilient? Because it's never too late to do anything. Of course, it would have been, I have some decisions that I think, wow, if I'd known the pandemic were coming, I would have done this and this. So hindsight's 2020, but I would still ask people, what can you still do? And asking ourselves what we can do gives us a sense of agency. And it gives us our own roadmap where there is none. We don't know where COVID's leading us. We don't know how long uh, businesses are going to be shut down. We don't know what the entire economic fallout's going to be. But one of my tricks is, what do I have agency over? What can I control? What work can I still do? Is this time to retrain? Should I take a course? Um, these, I'm sure people are already asking themselves that, but that's where your power is your, your personal power is in the things that you actually can control, including not letting anxiety or depression spiral out of control, because they easily could in a situation like this.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's, that makes all the difference in the world when it comes to stress and uncertainty, is whether you stew in that, and whether you just sit in it and notice all the things a lot of it comes back to awareness like when we notice the things we can't control we tend to fixate on them right and then when we when we when we bring it back in and we say oh this is something that is within my control this is within my power right then when we take agency or you know we have some autonomy in that um just that sense of action i think taking action towards something because i think a lot of what people are experiencing right now and what people maybe experience in anxiety and depression and addiction. I kind of, I love them all together in, in my mind often because they're kind of the three headed monster of like being stuck, right? In a lot of ways, they're they're the result of us being stuck in our lives, stuck in our pain, right? Whether that's from childhood trauma, whether that's from an adverse, couple of adverse life experiences, whether it's stuck in a pandemic, right? And, and really feeling yourself stuck there you know, the antidote to that is some sort of action, right? And in order to take action, we have to know it is like, have some control and power and, and to take it. Um,
1: yeah. I, I'd like to speak to that for a couple of seconds here. I told you earlier that I define depression as being caught in the pain of the past. And I define anxiety as the fear of the future. And one of the things I do on a daily basis is I find ways to bring myself back into the present moment. Because it's the perfect antidote. When, when I ice climbed for the very first time, I realized later that I was brought into the present moment. And there's no pain of the past in the present moment. And there's no fear of the future. I didn't have a bank account. I didn't have uh, relationship problems. I didn't have... Literally nothing existed. And some people call that the flow state and some people call it your passion. But I encourage everyone... Find that thing. You may already know what it is and you may not, but find that thing where you just lose sense of of that there is even a world out there. I've heard people say they get it when they play music or listen to music. Some people say they get it when they play with their dog, walk their dog. I get it when I do exercise and the more vigorous the exercise, uh, the better, hence the ice climbing. But I encourage everyone to find it because that's, Uh, I call it the pause that refreshes. You get a break from the stress. And a lot of times people call passions useless things. Like people, well, what do you get from ice climbing? You don't make any money. You suffer. It's cold. And what they don't realize is what I'm getting is something that you can't even put a price on. I'm, I'm getting my consciousness back my attention back i'm relieving my stress it's a big part of self-care and i encourage people to ask themselves what's that thing that i do that i think is a waste of time because i'm not making any money or pushing my relationship forward or my stocks or my bonds what's that one thing that i do that that i just really feel alive and in the moment when i do it
0: yeah that's that's a wonderful piece of advice i think that so much of our life is spent in that that doing for something else like doing for that future state or for that gratification of something that's out there versus the the being i talked to my friend kimberly mcadam she's a a leadership coach and a partner of mine and some some things we're doing and she talks about being versus doing all the time and how we get locked into the doing and that that's the hamster wheel of life that we get on and chasing things and it's oftentimes running to an emotion that we want to experience or running away from an emotion that we, that we don't want to experience and the, the being in the moment being, whether that's in a relationship with someone actually just being present or being present with ourselves in something on a frozen waterfall somewhere. Um, I think that's a, that's a very important piece of, of advice and wisdom.
1: I think it's related to uh, productivity. We're taught in our culture to be productive. And when someone says, what did you do today? They don't, they're not, they don't mean, did you meditate? And they don't mean, they usually don't mean, did you go do something crazy like climb a frozen waterfall? They usually mean, did you do work? Uh, Did you take care of the kids? Did you clean the house? Did you make a dinner? It usually is related to productivity. And I uh, I think men and women get into productivity mode differently and they do look like addictions. And for the most part, they are. Men can become addicted to work because they get validation from it sure, you you get paid and it puts food on the table, but it's also a feeling of validation and women get validation. They raise their kids, they've got a clean house. And I mean, I know I'm kind of being sexist here, but I'm just trying to explain it in in the cultural ways that I know how to explain it. That's why you tend to see more men who are workaholics than women. And you tend to see women put relationships on a very high um, uh, level. They triage them up at the top which I think is a very healthy thing to do. But we also live in a society that values productivity and rewards you. It doesn't reward you for chatting with your friends or spending time with your children. It rewards you for these prot- productive things that put money into your bank account. But these are all things that I think a lot of us are thinking about now in this pandemic and the with the economy being shut down. I think a lot of us are asking ourselves, Hmm, did I really want to be in the city for 40 years or did I come here thinking I would be here for five years? Or I think we're all kind of rethinking things. And I think that's really healthy because we just came through one of the most stable periods in human history, stable and affluent for countries such as Canada. And I think it made us complacent I think it, it, the stability is good, but I think we also moved into complacency. And I think it was natural to do that, but I think COVID has snapped us out of it. What areas in my life was I being complacent in? What areas in my life did I think I just, I have all the time in the world to go to Africa, and then all of a sudden, I'm not allowed to get on a plane and go to Africa.
0: Mm-hmm. Was that the area that you were being complacent in? Do you wish that you had been to Africa or what?
1: Well... I traveled a bunch cause I'm living with an Australian, but so I, I hesitate to say that I wish I'd traveled more, but yes, there's some areas of the world that I haven't seen. And now I'm like, huh, it might be a lot more complicated and a lot more costly to go see those places.
0: <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I want to round out the show a little bit. I usually try and keep it to an hour. I've already taken a good chunk of your Monday nights. So, um, but I wanted to touch on a, a, a a value or a conversation that we had had previously a couple of days ago when we were doing a bit of a, a tech check, um, this idea of ownership. I know you've got some, some thoughts around like ownership, accountability, maybe it's connected to complacency. Maybe it's connected to um, some of the, the, I don't want to say laziness, but comfort. That our society has generated, like you say, over a period of stability and peacefulness and, and wealth that we've accumulated, there's been a sense of maybe complacency in society, maybe less accountability for people to take. And there's a, there, we, we dug into ownership a little bit and I wanted to park it and bring it back tonight because I think that in a lot of ways, taking ownership of our lives is is pretty fundamental to our wellness, for one thing. All right, to when we talk about addiction and depression and anxiety and and all of the other the spectrum of of life, um but just generally speaking, I don't know that we foster a good, strong sense of ownership in our society right now, so how do you think about ownership um when it comes to kind of your own wellness um or maybe how is your relationship to the idea of of ownership and accountability changed over time?
1: well. One of the things I try to do because I did it in my healing journey is I, I try to, uh, I know this might, this might sound really out there for some of you, but I try to say, I created this. Like, like even though someone could say, well, you didn't create childhood trauma. I just find that framing it that way allows me to find solutions based on self-empowerment instead of victimhood. So I just say, um, like, I don't know I don't know what COVID is or where it comes from, but I say to myself, you know, what if as humanity, there's certain parts of COVID that we created. For instance, the high debt, going into a contraction of the economy with high debt levels wasn't a good idea. And if we had known, perhaps we wouldn't have gone in with so much debt. I think there's a lot of ways that humans can take ownership individually and collectively right now about our choices, because long before COVID entered the picture, we already had climate events. We already, we still had wars in the Middle East. We still had uh, long running conflicts going on between populations. We, to put it bluntly, we had a lot of problems and we have a lot of problems. And so we had problems, then COVID came along. And now I'm watching the economy contract And I'm watching choices get, um, basically life's getting shrink wrapped around us a little bit, if I could use that analogy. And we're not traveling, we don't have as many distractions. And I think there's a lot of healing that can happen for humanity through what we're living through right now, even though we would not will it on the world, you would never will it on an individual. But I've always, the the way I'm looking at COVID right now is the way I've looked at my trauma. How can I take ownership now? And how can I look at myself as a self-empowered person? Because choice is our fundamental power. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to empower ourselves, we have to take accountability for every single choice. And it gets easier and easier. And I also call it a no-blame game. Whether it's childhood trauma or events happening in the world, it's a, it's a lot easier to start from, an, uh, from a no blame. Like, oh, you idled your car. Yeah, but you flew around the planet with your Australian husband. Yeah, but like, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't lead us anywhere. But personal responsibility does. And I also want uh, one of the messages I like to tell people is we can be speedboats. Sometimes we feel like, oh, I've got to row the boat because uh, my mother doesn't want to talk about my childhood or my siblings don't want me to write a memoir. You can be a speedboat in a rowboat world. You can accelerate your own healing and your own learning. It takes work and it takes belief in yourself, but the rewards, I call healing the gift that keeps on giving, Jeff, because every day if I heal one layer of the onion, For the rest of my life, I get to live with that healed layer. And then, sure, I got some more layers, but that's why life just keeps getting better and better. And I would say that taking ownership and responsibility for one's situation in life is integral to becoming self-empowered and to healing oneself.
0: Awesome. I can't think of a better way to wrap up this conversation than with that note, and I love the metaphor of being a speedboat in a rowboat world. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna take that, and I'm gonna look at ways in which I've been rowing when I could have been uh, going a little bit faster in my own journey. So thank you for that, uh, that tidbit. And um, I want to make sure that we send people to your website, margotalbot.com to grab a copy of the book. Do you have a copy of the book handy? I can show people what it looks like. All the glitters. And is it just recently re-released? Did I catch uh, news? Uh,
1: yeah, my original publisher's warehouse burnt down. And oh, wow. I recent, I self-published for a number of years. And then Rocky Mountain Books just re-released it with this gorgeous cover photo.
0: It is gorgeous. And,
1: uh, yeah. yeah, so it's available on my website, Amazon, Rocky Mountain Books website. Wherever you get your books. Yep.
0: Awesome. But de- people should definitely check out Margotelbot.com. And you've got some blog posts, you've got some writings, probably links to other podcasts and things that you've done.
1: Yeah. And if people sign up for my newsletter, they get a, it's a ebook, it's a work in progress, but they get a free copy of the Vitality Spectrum as it is right now. It goes over things we talked about tonight, all the physical, mental, emotional stuff, tools that I used.
0: Amazing. That's great. And I was actually going to ask if there's a second book in the queue. Is that the next one? Yes. Or...
1: There's well, that could be. Well, it could be. There's books in the queue. Yes, thanks for asking. <laughs> All
0: right, well. <laughs> I'm excited to have you back on the show when the next book is out and we can, we can talk all about that. So, uh, Margo, thank you so much for joining me tonight and for spending the time and sharing your wisdom and your insights. I think, uh, you know, I got a ton of value and that's, that's what this show is really about. It's actually just a selfish pursuit for me to talk to interesting people and learn things for myself. (laughs) And if anybody else out there benefited that that's great too. And so I want to thank you very much and have a wonderful rest of your night. Thanks, Jeff. Good night.